three metamorphoses in a row. Bang, bang, bang across two cantos of Inferno. And we have finished the last of the three, but not quite. Hi, I'm Mark Scarborough. This is the podcast Walking with Dante, a podcast in which we slow walk through Dante's masterwork comedy. And we are in the 25th canto of Inferno. We're in the seventh of the pouches of fraud, the evil pouches of fraud in the eighth circle of hell. Every time I say all those numbers, it seems more and more confusing to me. The seventh (laughs) pouch of the eighth circle of hell. Anyway, that's where we are. And we've come all the way out almost to the back of Canto 25. The last episode of this podcast, we went through this rather longish passage of the third metamorphosis, and we went through it to see its textual resonances, to see pieces of it, where it comes from, to talk about Lucan and Ovid. We're going to talk more about that in this episode. This episode is a follow-up episode. We're going to talk about the implications of this metamorphosis. We're going to start with easy implications and move all the way to insanely big meta-literary implications. Without any further ado, let's read the passage, Canto 25, lines 79 through 141. This is my rough English language translation of the passage. There are better English translations out there from J. Simon Harris, from Robert Hollander, from Esselin, oh, there's all kinds out there. You can find better than mine. Mine is pretty rough, but still, nonetheless, we're going to give it a go. And usually this is done with sound effects and funny voices and all that, as we did with the second metamorphosis in the second episode of that passage. No funny stuff here, just the passage itself. Just as a lizard under the heavy lash of the dog star runs from hedge to hedge and glitters like lightning as it crosses the road, just so appeared a flaming little serpent purple and black like peppercorns. He came right up to the gut of each of the other two. Right at that spot where we get our first food, it fixed itself onto one of them. Then it fell off and stretched out in front of him. The bitten one looked at the serpent but said nothing. Instead, he just stood planted on his feet, yawning as if fatigue or a fever plagued him. He held the serpent's gaze, and it held his. Smoke billowed out from both his wound and the serpent's mouth, and then the plumes commingled. Let Lucan shut up right now, especially where he talks about the misery of Sibelius and Nasidius. Let him wait to hear what my bow lets loose. Let Ovid shut up in those passages about Cadmus and Arethusa. If his poetry morphs one into a snake and the other into a fountain... I'm not jealous of him in the least, because with two natures facing each other, he never transformed things so that their forms quickly swapped places with their materiality. They responded to each other by normative rules. The snake made a fork in its tail, and the wounded guy's feet pulled in together. His calves, then his thighs, stuck together so tight, in fact, that it was impossible to see a crack between them. Meanwhile, the snake's tail took the shape that the other had lost, and its skin got soft while the others got hard. I saw the man's arms shrink up to their pits, and the two feet of the beast, which were short, lengthened in a reverse way to what the other guy lost. Its back feet then twisted together to become the member that men hide, while the one on the miserable soul became two paws. The smoke enclosed both the one and the other, giving off a new color and making hair grow on the parts of one while it sloughed off the parts of the other. One stood up, The other fell down, but neither of them turned their baleful lanterns from each other, even as their muzzles were changing under them. 
The one who was erect scrunched up his face toward his temples so that the excess material extruded itself into ears out of his smooth, flat cheeks. The excess material that didn't switch around toward the back made the stuff of the nose on his face and thickened his lips to the right size. As to the one on the ground, his muzzle stretched out and his ears pulled back into his head, about as the horns of a snail retract. His tongue, which had been in one piece and capable of speech, split itself, and the forked tongue of the other fused together. That's when the smoke stopped. The one who had become a wild beast fled hissing down the valley, and the other who could speak now spat at that beast. Then he turned his new shoulders toward the third guy and said, My wish is that Buoso has to run, as I have had to, on all fours in this ditch. Okay, that's the passage. Long, complicated. We talked about it last time, about the various allusions in it and literary references inside of it. Now let's talk about the implications of this passage. There are quite a few of them, 10 in fact, plus a little 11th (laughs) bit of coda at the end of it all. Let's get to it. One, we talked about a gay panic in the second metamorphosis, and I think we can say the same is here. We could say that this scene has erotic overtones, and indeed it does, holding each other's gaze, smoke. I tried to explain that in the last episode of the podcast. There may be insemination motifs running through here. All of that goes together to say that, again, there's a kind of gay panic about a scene in which two men bond together or swap places or one becomes the other. Trust me, being married to my husband for 25 years, I can tell you that one man can become the other over the course of time. Trust me. Anyway, I would say that, again, there is a kind of gay panic running in these passages. That's a modern use of the term. It's not a term that I would think that Dante has any access to whatsoever. But I do think that's part of the threat here. I think there is a homosexual threat in both the second and the third metamorphosis. Okay, what else can we say? As we talked about last time, the metaphors are more fully integrated into the poetic texture of this passage, so much so that the esteemed Dantista Robert Hollander misses one. He claims there are three metaphors in this passage. There's the lizard, like under a dog star at the heat of the day. There's the fever and fatigue metaphor. And then there's the horns of a snail metaphor. Guess which one he missed? The peppercorns. It appeared the little flaming serpent purple and black like peppercorns. And while I'm not trying to kick Robert Hollander in his now deceased shins, rather (laughs) Hollander's a fine, fine dentista whose work has taught me a great deal. Rather, what I'm trying to suggest is that the metaphors are so adequately woven into the text itself, it's easy to miss them. It's very hard in the first two metamorphoses in this pit, Vani Fucci, and then the second one where Agnello and perhaps Chianfa fuse into one piece. It's very easy to see those metaphors because they're just laid out in tercets, one after the other, bang, 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 like 
like like here they're spread across the passage and it's easy to miss them because they are worked into the poetic text itself as indeed hollander misses one of them when he claims there are three metaphors in each of the three metamorphoses let me say one more thing about that i think there may be a way in which these three metamorphoses are developmental we've already talked about that they could be theologically blasphemous, a kind of inversion of the resurrection, an inversion of the incarnation, an inversion of creation. But there may be a way in which each of the metamorphoses gets more complex. Vani Fucci's is a rather simple metamorphosis. The second metamorphosis of two beings fusing together is more difficult and has more literary weight behind it. And then this, the third one, is the most fleshed out, the most difficult to pull off, and has the most number of overt literary references inside of it. So these three metamorphoses may be developmental, and already you can hear my metatext rising up in front of me and telling you that this may be a way that Dante is illustrating the development of his own poetics from a rather simple, straightforward reportage with Vanni Fucci to this much more complicated stance in which his forebearers, Ovid and Lucan, the poets before him, are woven into the text, challenged, put down. There may be a way in which the sheer originality of the final metamorphosis here is a developmental hypothesis from the first rather simply reported metamorphosis. An interesting idea that these three move in some progression across each other, but there are more implications ahead of us. This is one of the first punishments that we could say is a forever punishment. This is a forever narrative in this pit. Before this point, it's hard to imagine the foreverness of the punishment. Let's go back and think about the panderers walking endlessly around a ditch being whipped by demons. Okay, I mean, you know, what is that? It's just walking round and round and round for eternity. Or let's think about Chaco, the glutton. I mean, he's lying in the filth up there, but I mean, there's no more story to be told about Chaco. In fact, it even seems to suggest that he loses consciousness until the second coming of Christ at the end of his passage. I mean, perhaps there's some more to be said about Francesca and Paolo out on the wind, but what's the story? They're just going to be blown around and blown around and blown around. This pit, the seventh pit of the thieves in the large circle of fraud, this pit has a narrative that can go on forever. We can imagine thousands of these metamorphoses on and on and on, millions of them, particularly because this pit is writhing with snakes. So there could be all kinds of change places, swap places, swapped identities, fusions, fusions of people, fusions of snakes to snakes. We could even imagine that. Fusions of people to people. We could even imagine that. We could just imagine this punishment going on forever. And it's interesting that it's this late in Inferno in which we get a future-oriented narrative punishment. It may be that Dante is starting to 
open up his poetics. It may be that the reportage of Vani Fucci is rather the opening bits of Inferno, much more reportage, except for that very difficult first canto, much more reportage. And by the time we get here, the poetics have opened up enough that we are beyond mere reportage. Think about those violent against their neighbors standing in the river of blood or submerged in the river of blood. Think about how reported that was versus this incredibly fully developed and original passage here amongst the thieves. There are two ways you can look at this. One is that Dante is developing his poetics or two, that Dante is teaching you how to read his poetics. So he knows that early on you need a simpler, more reporting style. And as we move forward through comedy, comedy gets increasingly complex because you're learning how to read it. I'm not going to actually answer which one I think it is, but I think you can come down in either direction. Let's move on to the fourth implication. Notice that in the passage, it says that this metamorphosis happens by, I translated it as, normative rules. They responded to each other by normative rules. And we see this synchronous change as one changes one way, one changes the other way. As this one's snout pulls out, that one's snout retracts. As this one's tongue divides, that one's tongue fuses together. We see this kind of normative synchronous pattern. But that's the pattern of narrative. That's the normative rules that narrative functions by. That is parallelisms. And I think it's important to note that this is being told to us with a self-consciously narrative strategy. The parallelism that is the dominant feature of what will eventually become novels and short stories become the dominant feature of fiction itself. I mean, fiction runs on mirrored scenes and parallel structures. That's how novels get written. And I think it's interesting that here in the last of the metamorphoses, we see Dante highlight that for us to explain to us that the storytelling is going to be synchronous. It strikes me that this, we're watching this here, a development of narrative, a development of the Western sense of narrative that will finally result in Pride and Prejudice and, I don't know, Lincoln and the Bardo and any number of novels that you can imagine. We're seeing it kind of, the, what do I want to say, the grain seeds here of how narrative works and by what rules narrative works. Okay, what else? Does the punishment here fit the crime? It's a question that plagues most critics. Throughout comedy, there is a constant question of does the punishment fit the crime? And while perhaps we can see the lustful blown about by winds, particularly because of the way the medievals believe that wind was involved in eroticism, we can see that the punishment fits the crime. But here, 
I'm not sure. Does this fit thievery? You can see lots and lots of critics trying to backform this into some kind of way in which the punishment fits the crime. Well, see, they stole things and then they claimed they were their own. And so they swapped identities by swapping goods or swiping goods from people. But where in the passage does it say that? It doesn't say that Vanifucci took the treasury from the church and then used it as if it was own. It didn't say like he stole a silver platter and then used it to serve wine on at his own home. It never says that anywhere. It doesn't say that they swapped anything and it became part of their identity. So I'm not sure that I buy that. It seems like you're trying to make the text fit something. I'm not sure this is not the pit where the promise of Garion finally comes due. Remember when Garion, the beast of fraud, flies up to the ledge that is the end of the seventh circle and beaches itself onto that ledge and Virgil and Dante get on its back and Dante says, I swear I really saw this. I swear it on my own comedy. And we talked endlessly about swearing on the beast of fraud that you actually walked across hell when we know well and good you didn't. Well, it strikes me that this pit is the moment in which that debt comes due. And while these are the thieves here, surely, I guess, because Vanifucci stole and maybe these guys stole something. We'll talk more about that in the next episode of Walking with Dante. Maybe these guys stole something. Still, nonetheless, this feels far too developed to actually be about theft. This seems much more about the writing of comedy and about how comedy gets written, about how Dante relates to his poetic forebearers. Listen, I don't have to save Dante from inconsistencies. I don't have to make Dante be at every moment perfectly consistent. We don't have to make excuses or we don't have to make patches for the art. We can let the art be the art. We can let Dante be Dante. And if Dante wants to go off on a jag here about his literary forebears and literary theft and theological theft and all that, let's let him do it. Let's let him take it where he wants to take it. Listen, how can you say theft anyway is part of a hierarchy of sin this far down? in hell. I mean, is are you really going to argue that theft is worse than murder? If you're going to make a hierarchy of sins in order to make sense of Dante, then you're going to have to eventually come to terms with that, that somehow stealing people's junk is is worse than killing them? No, I don't think so. I really think killing them is worse. And I think that we all probably, in a moral stance, agree to that. So you could either say, that Dante is engaging in scholastic silliness. That is, he's got this sin of fraud, he's dividing it up into its many parts like the scholastics did with theology, and like the scholastics, he's running into all kinds of bumps and humps that finally bring the illogic of this scholastic system to its knees. You could claim that. You could claim that Dante even knows he's bringing the scholastic system to its knees. I don't think that's right. But you could claim it. Or... You could claim that there are all kinds of literary shenanigans going on here in the seventh pit of fraud. 
and Dante wants them here. And so we just need to give it to him. We need to let him have this as a crazy pit in which he finally comes to terms with, in fact, the very poets who form so much of his work. Sixth implication. Lucan has been in this pit from the very beginning. I mean, we have this bit, let Lucan shut up, and we talked about Sibelius and Asidius in the last episode of this podcast. But honestly, the Pharsalia has been in here from the beginning all the way back into the initial vision of this pit with all its snakes and listing off all the snakes from the Pharsalia. Why is that important? The Pharsalia is Lucan's unfinished epic about the struggle for control between Caesar and Pompey. That struggle for control blows out to battles in North Africa and battles in what we would now call the Middle East. Lucan does not finish the Pharsalia, but in the end, the Pharsalia is an epic about control and legacy and who is going to be in control of the legacy of Rome and what is going to be the legacy of Rome. And that whole motif is surely going on here with Dante. Now we're going to get meta. Surely there is a question about legacy here, about Dante's legacy in the face of other poets, about Dante's legacy and control of his own work. Is the control of his own work lying with Virgil or Ovid or Lucid, or is it lying with himself? And if it's lying with himself, then doesn't he just have to take it like a thief? Doesn't he have to take control of his own work? I think so. And I think that's why the Pharsalia is so crucial to the seventh pit. It is about the struggle for who's going to control the empire and who's going to leave the legacy, just as if this passage is a struggle for who's going to control and leave the legacy here, Dante or Ovid, Lucan, and Virgil? Mm, it's Dante, which brings us to our seventh point. The camaraderie of limbo is gone. Remember that bit when Homer walks up to them in limbo? Remember all the way back up there in limbo, Homer walks up to them and following Homer is Horace and Ovid and Lucan and they join Virgil and Dante and they're the six of them and they wander on talking about poetry, I guess, talking about all kinds of things that are unrecorded. Remember that fabulous moment in which Dante says, they made me one of their group. Well, it's busted now. That camaraderie founded in limbo is all done here. Let Lucan shut up. Let Ovid shut up. It's over. And I think it's important to know it's over. It's important to know that we got this far down into Inferno before Dante had to come to full terms and wrest control of his narrative from the very figures who are his poetic fathers. But there's a cost of that, and that cost is what we want to talk about. If you're basing your poetry on your literary fathers, is there a way that ultimately you can swap places with them? Mm. That may be a huge meta-literary implication of this third metamorphosis amongst the thieves. There is a way in which the 
poet Dante and his literary forebearers are swapping positions, swapping places. And in swapping places, the poet eventually comes into control of his own poem. But there's also a threat here, which brings us to our ninth implication. Is there a meta-literary position here essentially about becoming your poetic fathers? If you base too much of your poetry on Ovid and Lucan and Virgil, is there a way that you can accidentally become them? Now, in the previous point I made, it was all about control and outdoing your fathers. Now I'm saying maybe there's a way in which this metamorphosis expresses a poetic fear. That is, if you base your poetry on other poets, there's a way in which you will disappear and they will swap places with you. And ultimately, someone will say, yeah, this isn't Dante's poem. This is Virgil's poem. Not that Virgil wrote it, but Virgil, listen, he controls this poem. It's Virgil's poem. Or listen, this is Lucan's poem. Or listen, this is Ovid's poem. Oh, there's a huge fear for a creative artist. Not that you can outdo your literary fathers, but that you might just become them and in becoming them lose who you are and there may be a way that the final metamorphosis in this pit that is all about poetic theological and (laughs) literary and traditional metamorphoses all wound up and bound up together into this moment of originality in which even the poet says no one else ever did this I'm doing it now on my own there is a way that back behind that sits the fear of oh my god I'm turning into my poetic father. Just, just, just let it sit behind me. You know, I'll say something and think, oh my God, I'm turning into my mother. Her voice just fell out of my mouth. That fear for a creative artist could be explored, expressed, even subconsciously in this passage. And now our final implication language here finally breaks down. And this is what brings me back to that point that I just made about fear. I mean, this whole metamorphosis takes place. They swap places. The serpent becomes, or we would say a reptile. Dante says serpent. A serpent becomes a human again. The human becomes a serpent and runs off hissing. But language itself is broken down. The final thing that happens is their tongues, either fusing or splitting, depending on which one they are. And then we get this line, which is not a line of dialogue. Instead, it's a it's a soliloquy. My wish is that Buoso has to run as if I have had to on all fours in this ditch. This isn't communication. This is soliloquy. It's not a dialogue as we had with Francesca, as we had with Chaco, as we had with Ferenata, as we had with Pierre de la Vagna, as we had with Brunetto Latini. It's not a dialogue. It is, in fact, a monologue. This bit of solipsistic soliloquy is sitting here at the end. In other words, you can reach a place of originality in which you stop communicating. And your originality is so pronounced that you're no longer carrying on a conversation with me, your reader. Rather, you're just displaying your talents. And I'm smiling because I think this is setting up 
the next canto. We're about to encounter one of the great sinners of hell, ranking up there with Pierre de la Vagna, with Ferranata, with Francesca. I mean, in the 26th canto, we are going to come across a biggie, and a biggie who is going to launch into a soliloquy. There's going to be very little conversation between this figure and the pilgrim or Virgil. In fact, this figure is going to seem to want to pursue his own story at all costs, and I don't even care who's listening to me. And he's going to attribute part of what he does to incredible mad folly or overreach, and in fact, Isn't that what's happening here? We reach this place in which a poetic fear may be being expressed, and finally it comes down to then just a line of soliloquy that loses any readership. Who's he saying that to? Virgil and Dante? Is he saying it to the third guy with him? I guess he is. He says toward the third guy, he turns his shoulder and says, but what does this guy care I mean, they don't, they're not going to have a conversation about this. He, the third guy is not going to respond in any way to it. He's just going to stand there and listen. Let me tell you, the next passage is no conversation between them. This seems like just informational stuff thrown out without the notion of dialogue behind it, <laughs> setting us up for the great sinner that's right ahead of us in hell. Before I end this podcast, I just want to do one coda to all of these implications. While I have gotten incredibly meta-literary, and while I have gotten incredibly up in the stratosphere of poetic technique and all that stuff, I'm going to remind you that we're in the early 1300s. It seems like a really important thing to tell you this right now. We're in the early 1300s. The Holy Roman Empire is sitting up there north of Dante, threatening the Italian peninsula. France is the other great power sitting off there to the side. France is desperately trying to control the kingdom of Naples and Sicily. There is a huge power struggle going on. There is no Russia, as we know Russia now, to the east of them sit the Mongolian hordes. By the way, I should say this right here at the end. I just read a fantastic book by the French scholar Marie Faverot, and it's just called The Horde, How the Mongols Changed the World. And it is an extraordinarily detailed and beautiful history of the nomadic Mongol tribes that basically changed the entire face of Europe, including Dante's Italian peninsula, through their trading through Arabic states. It's kind of a mind-boggling thing to think about nomadic tribes as more in final control of the development of the West than those settled kings in Paris or in any of the hundreds of spots across the Holy Roman Empire, those duchies and principalities, or even the Vatican. But to think that a nomadic group actually kind of set the fate of Europe in motion. Now, check it out, uh, Marie Favreau's The Horde. It's a beautiful book, but I just want to remind you that that's where we are. There's the Mongolian Empire, the Mongol Empire sitting out there. There's the Holy Roman Empire above us. There's France beside us. Don't even talk about the Iberian Peninsula. It's just a nightmare going on over there of control problems and consolidation and fights and English problems. Oh my gosh, that's a mess. 
mess. The papacy is absconding off to Avignon. Rome itself is losing its power central source, which means it's losing control of the Italian peninsula, which means that the Italian peninsula is falling into a vice grip between the Holy Roman Empire to the north and the kingdom of Naples and Sicily to the south, which bears some allegiance to the French crown. Don't forget, this is 1300. It's not 2022. It seems meta-literary. It seems all postmodern. It seems crazy, as all medieval lit does. All medieval lit looks postmodern. The more, <laughs> the more you look at it, it's true. No matter what you want to think about it, it is true. But nonetheless, it's just important to remember where we are in history. So that's this podcast about the implications of this passage. I'm not going to read it again because we're going to finish off the thieves in the next episode of this podcast. And then we're going to have one final episode on this entire gigantic landscape that is the seventh pouch of the gigantic landscape of fraud. So I'm not going to reread this passage right now. Instead, I'm just going to tell you that you need to subscribe to this podcast and please rate it. Ah, oh, that would be so wonderful. I just saw a rating pop up on Apple Podcasts in the U.S. that said that the theological, literary, and historical allusions on this podcast are perfectly nerdy. And I thought, ah, oh, that makes me feel so happy <laughs> to be described as perfectly nerdy. I've been working my whole life to be perfectly nerdy. Thanks for that. So subscribe, rate the podcast if you can on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening wherever you are. Thanks for being on this journey with me. Find me on Twitter under my own name, Mark Scarborough, and I'll see you back next time for the conclusion. Oh, finally, at long last, the conclusion of the thieves here in the seventh bit and here on the podcast, Walking with Dante. I'm Mark Scarborough. I'll see you then. Mm-hmm.